opportunity, Dr. Patterson. It's always a joy for us to be able to come back to Seminary Hill. I'm, I'm glad that Julie got to come with me. She and I moved here in August of 1988. That's 28 years ago. It's hard to believe with uh, a little baby. And uh, all we knew is that God had called me to be a minister of the gospel. And other than that, you could not have met two more clueless people than we were. <laughs> She grew up Lutheran, and uh, nobody in my family had even been to college, much less graduate school. And uh, we were just uh, following the Lord one step at a time. And he's been faithful to us, and we give him thanks for that this morning. I, I want to tell you my story today in one sentence, kind of a long sentence, but one sentence. I have a good friend that uh, when he's making conversation, even when he's interviewing people for our staff, he asks, tell me your story. What's your story? And it's interesting to hear people begin to answer that question and uh, the kind of sense of themselves that comes to the surface as they seek to answer that question, what is your story? Well, I'm going to tell you my story in just one sentence. I wonder what, what you would say in reply to that question. What is your story? Before I give you my answer, open the Bible with me to Titus. I want us to look at a beautiful, beautiful text in Titus chapter 3. I learned a long time ago that uh, if you're not much of a preacher, then uh, pick a good text. And, and so Titus, we're going to look at some of, some of those beautiful words we find in the New Testament. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. And let me tell you part of what I want to do this morning. This is the text that I preached to our people Sunday. And uh, I, I, the Lord uh, convicted me a few years ago that when I have opportunity to preach to a, uh, an assembly like this, I, I don't want to bring a, 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 a kind of a sugar stick sermon or something specially crafted with all my best stuff for this occasion. I want you to have a sense of how I preach to our people week in and week out, the, the kind of pastoral preaching that builds up the flock. And so this, I've tweaked this a little bit because you're not my congregation and uh, made it more applicable to you. But this is basically the message I preach Sunday to our people here at, at Quail Springs or there at Quail Springs. So let's read Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is not a narrative text, but it reads like a story to me in that it has a, a kind of a flow that all stories have. All, all stories, you know, have three acts, three parts, a beginning, a middle 
and an end. And, and this text unfolds that way. The beginning is a description of our sin. And it's one of the most powerful descriptions of our sinful nature that we see in Scripture. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved of various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I think that triad of words is especially powerful that moves from disobedient to deceived to enslaved. Isn't that that the trap of sin? That reminds me of the life of Samson. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved. And, And this is our life of sin. Notice, not they, not those people out there, But we also, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. That's the beginning point of our story. And really, the story of God's work of grace in our lives does not begin until we come to this recognition that this is our beginning. Uh, You know the story that Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. One of the interesting things to me about that story is everyone around that young man, everyone reading the story, quickly realizes that this man is a sinner. He's selfish. He's disobedient. He's deceived. He's enslaved. And everybody knows it for the longest time except for him. And finally, he comes to his senses Literally, he comes to himself. And so the beginning of our story is when, by God's grace, we come to ourselves and recognize our own desperate sinful condition for what it is. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved. You know, it's, it's true in life in so many regards that it's important that we remember where we came from, right? And it's particularly true for those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to remember that we all have this same beginning. Sinners, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. And from that beginning, the story begins to unfold. Act 2, verse 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior... And his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Don't pass too quickly over the beautiful New Testament word that Paul uses there in verse 4, appeared. You you understand that that's almost technical language that refers to to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the word epiphany. And that that refers not just to his incarnation, but but the whole of his, his saving work, his birth and life and death and resurrection, his appearing to save us. And you remember that this is a word that's used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. And it's a word that runs all the way back to the birth narratives of Luke. Remember when Simeon, I'm sorry, Zacharias, the priest, the father 
of John the baptizer finally celebrates the birth of John and he can speak and he sings the song celebrating and we realize when he sings that song that he's really not talking much at all about his son John but he's celebrating the fact that the birth of John the forerunner gives us confidence that the promise is being kept that the Messiah is going to be born and in Zechariah's song, Luke chapter 1, verse 79, Zechariah rejoices and says that the light is shining in the darkness in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so when Paul, in verse 4, talks about the kindness of God and his love for mankind appearing, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the coming of Christ Jesus to be a light that shines in our darkness to save us. And I think what we like best about this text is that beginning part of verse 5, which says, with such clarity and confidence and simplicity, He saved us. He saved us. And, and, and you notice the Trinitarian formula here in verse 4, 5, and 6, and 7. God saved by the Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the saving work is emphasized. In verse 4, God is called our Savior. And in verse 6, Jesus Christ is called our Savior. And verse 5 says, He saved us. The only verb that's first person here is a verb that says, not what we did. The rest of this is all about God's saving work in our lives. His kindness, His love, His mercy, His grace. He saved us. When I was a student here, I was a pastor of a small church. And um, uh, up on the good side of the Red River. And uh, <laughs> I took, a Julie and I, took a little group of students to church camp and had this seventh grade girl got saved. Rough background. And, uh, and when we got home from camp, we waited for somebody to pick the kids up and most of the parents were there waiting for us. You understand we're talking about eight or nine kids. And, and this one seventh grade girl had been saved. Nobody came to get her. And uh, so we took her home trailer house with a wooden porch built on the front of it and when we pulled up in front of that porch her old drunk dad was sitting on the porch on a couch and uh, I walked up behind her and she was so happy she bounded up on that porch and said daddy I got saved and he said saved from what I wanted to say, have you looked in the mirror lately, buddy? <laughs> Save from what? Save from verse 3. Yeah. Right? Disobedient, deceived, enslaved. He saved us. And, and that's one of the first times as a student here and pastor in a small church that I've, I remember myself being challenged with what exactly do we mean when we say I got saved, rescued, delivered. What does that mean? 
And, and I want you to see how here in verse 5 and 6 and 7, Paul unpacks all, uh, what Jesus does for us when he saves us. Let, let me pick up there midway through verse 5. According to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, there's some technical language here, regeneration, justified. But to state simply the way Paul describes the saving work of God in our lives, what he does for us when he saves us, Paul says, he makes us new, he makes us right, he makes us his. That, 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 that verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That, that's, that's, that's one activity. There's just one preposition here, one event, one action. Don't chop that up and try to make a distinction between regeneration and renewal. He saves us. What's that mean? It means by the Holy Spirit, he washes us. He makes us new. He gives us new birth, a new life. He makes us new. And this is, this is a promise as old as Ezekiel, right? This is, this is Ezekiel looking forward to the coming of the Messiah when that heart of stone would be replaced by a heart of flesh and, we'd be, and he'd put his spirit within us and make us new so that we could keep the law and be his people. He would, he would put his spirit in us. This is John the baptizer saying, the one who comes after me is mightier than I am. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will bring the fulfillment of that promise of making us new by the power of his Spirit. And verse 7, so that being justified by grace, he makes us new, he makes us right. You understand the word justified to set us right to make us right we were wrong guilty condemned he sets us right through the blood of the lord jesus christ by his grace he makes us new he makes us right he makes us his the last part of verse 7 so that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life now we like the the hope of eternal life part Right? That captures our imagination and our attention. And well, it should. That confident expectation of life eternal. But the thrust is that he made us heirs, sons and daughters, that we who were not a people have been made a people in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been given an inheritance, a heritage. We belong to him. He made us new, he made us right. He made us his. He saved us. This is what Paul is celebrating in this text. You, you know the name John Newton. Remember John Newton had a great story. A story with a beginning and a middle and an ending. And Newton who began his life as a slave trader. One of the most soul dark 
people ever. Newton began his life as a slave trader. He ended it as a minister of the gospel. And you remember that great paraphrase of Newton, that quote that says, I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. I am not the man I, I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. And so let me tell you my story. I was disobedient, deceived, enslaved to sin. But God saved me. He made me new. He made me right. He made me his. That's the story of the church on the island of Crete. It's Paul's story. It's Titus' story. It's John Newton's story. If you're here today as a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your story. I was disobedient, deceived, enslaved to sin. But he saved me. Made me new. Made me right. Made me his. If that's your story, say amen. amen. That's it, isn't it? Now let me give you the payoff here. Why is this important for you at this stage in your life as a seminary student or seminary professor or minister of the gospel? I, I, I want you to see that what Paul is doing here in Titus chapter 3 is helping us to understand that if we're not careful, we let the story shift. Our story it's his story. He saved us. But if we're not careful in the busyness and the burdens of our daily lives, as ministers of the gospel even, we began to allow the story to shift to where the story that we're replaying and rehearsing in our minds, the story we think we're living out, is a story about me about my sacrifices, about my service, about my significance. And let me tell you, brother and sister, as soon as you let that story shift to where it's not about him anymore, but it's about you, then you will shift into a life that is marked by prideful division and petty distraction. Zoom back out from our text just a click or two. And let me read Titus chapter 3 verse 1 through 9. And understand this celebration of the gospel in its context. And you don't need me to talk about this very much. Just read it. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To malign no one, not just talking about the church, but people outside the church, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration, that's the word meekness, every consideration, all meekness 
for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You see what Paul is doing? He says, let me tell you how to guard your heart, how to hedge your life against fruit, fruitless, prideful divisions and petty distractions. You keep focus on the real story. It's not about you, about your sacrifice or your service. It's about he saved me. And as long as our answer to the question, what's your story, is an answer that runs along the lines of the New Testament. I was disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by sin, but Jesus saved me. He made me new. He made me right. He made me his. As long as that's the story that's always playing in your heart and mind, that you're always rehearsing, then you'll walk humbly before God and man. And in your humility, in your brokenness, in your gentleness, you'll find yourself shunning petty arguments and always find a willingness to serve so as to not give in to prideful division. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Bow with me for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, the way it speaks to us, as relevant today as the day that Paul penned the word. We confess, Father, if we're not careful, pride keeps in, creeps in, selfishness. We confess, Father, that if we're not careful, we make it about us. And when we do, we find conflict, petty distractions, a pride that divides. We take offense. Lord, forgive us. We're sinners. You saved us. And we praise your name. Hallelujah. Amen.